Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 10. I'm going to read from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. We are this morning concluding our short series on shepherding. With the hope and expectation of an elder election later this autumn, we have looked last fall in a Sabbath school class at the office of elder, where it came from in the scriptures, what its history was, its development throughout the scriptures. Here in January and February, we've been looking at the work of the elder, the metaphor of shepherding as it's used in scripture. We'll come now to the final text, not surprisingly, I hope, it's Psalm 23. But before we go to Psalm 23, let's look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, 1 through 18, hear now the word of the Lord. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to him then. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and flees the sheep and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Amen. Jesus famously teaches here in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd. But in saying this, Jesus then gives two comparisons to help us understand the illustration. For as it says in verse 6, he used the metaphor, but we didn't get it. 
we tend not to get a lot of his metaphors. And he, in this illustration, says, I'm the good shepherd, not like the thief. You see, the difference between a shepherd and a thief is that the shepherd stands at the door, calls the sheep by name, and they pass in and out of the pasture and the fold under the eyes of the shepherd according to his word. They have a knowledgeable and intimate relationship with the shepherd. Not so the thief. He's a stranger. He comes at night under the cover of darkness. He climbs over the wall and they don't recognize him. And so they run from him. Secondly, Jesus says it is the difference between the hireling and the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, not like a hireling, not like a hired hand. That when wolves come in to eat the sheep, the hired hand flees and sacrifices the sheep for his own sake. But not so the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for his sheep. In both illustrations, we have this one principle. Jesus is the good shepherd. The one who serves the sheep. The one who takes care of the sheep and meets their needs. He's not like a thief who takes sheep for himself. And he's not like a hireling who abandons sheep to themselves. He is a good shepherd. He stays with his sheep and takes good care of them. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 23. The final sermon passage for this short series of sermons on shepherding is from Psalm 23. There are two reasons for this. The first is, can you really preach on shepherding as a metaphor in Scripture and not preach Psalm 23? I mean, seriously. Secondly, because this is a psalm, like so many psalms, takes nearly every theme and idea and motif associated with the metaphor of shepherding, pulls them all together, and in a series of images goes, and here's point one and point two and point three and point... So, I've preached five sermons. They've all gone rather long. I hope you guys didn't notice that. But they were unusually long. And now I'm going to preach all five at once. Using Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Here again, the word of the Lord. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And amen. At the beginning of the sermon series, we were in Matthew 9 and 10. The reason we began with that text is Jesus looks out at his people and he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion on them. And he decides to send his sheep to be their shepherds. And that becomes the foundational principle for this entire sermon series. That shepherds are not fundamentally different than sheep. But rather elders, to mix the the language, are sheep who have been called by Christ to do the work of a shepherd. Even though they themselves are still but sheep. Because the fundamental truth that elders must appreciate in their office, and which members must appreciate in submitting to that office, is that there is, according to John chapter 10, one shepherd. And it's not me. And it's not the elders you have elected or Lord willing will elect. There is one flock and one shepherd. And his name is Jesus. And he is a good shepherd. The gospel truth from this entire sermon series, indeed from this text this morning in Psalm 23, is that God is your shepherd. This is a statement of fact. Whether you didn't have a pastor or had a lousy pastor or had the best pastor that had ever existed in the history of the church... It wouldn't change this good news. Your shepherd is God. God is your shepherd. And so, friends, we must learn to live with Him. We must learn to be His sheep. It doesn't come naturally to us. And Psalm 23 trains us to live with God as if He were our shepherd. With that in mind, let's look at the text. God is your shepherd, learn to live with him. Notice that in the subtitle, this is a psalm that comes from an experienced shepherd. It is a psalm of David. This is a man who grew up with flocks and herds. He lived in rural Bethlehem and was indeed on that very famous day, as the story now goes, in which Jesse and all his sons came together to have a giant celebration in Bethlehem where Samuel himself was offering the sacrifice, that the youngest son, David, wasn't worthy of the great family honor of being at the head of the table. He missed the party. Why? He was with the servants shepherding the sheep. David knows what it's like to be a shepherd. That's his first job in life. That's what he knew as a child, as a young man. But now that he is king and head of Israel, Now that he has amassed to himself victories over the Philistines, over the Canaanites, the Amorites, over the Ammonites and the Moabites, he has defeated all the enemies of God and is the indisputable Lord and Master of the the people of God and the land of God. David starts his song with, The Lord is my shepherd. There are many practices in the ancient Near East where kings and emperors and monarchs will compare themselves to shepherds. 
The Persians will do this. The Babylonians will do this. The Hebrews will do this. But only David, at the height of his power, would compare himself to a sheep and say, I am not the shepherd of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. In this, we have our first principle that we have seen sermon after sermon. When we look at shepherding in the office of elder, the first principle is to understand. We want men who understand this isn't their church. They're not in charge. To be elected to the office of elder is not to be entrusted with an authority that makes you lord and master of the congregation. This congregation already has one. His name is Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, says King David. And all we who are less than kings should follow in suit. The first thing that a man of God must grasp in order to be qualified to be an elder is that God is the shepherd. God is the elder. And that I do not want when that is true of me. That He is the one on whom I depend wholly and entirely. There is a dependence at work in the heart of the faith of every man of God worthy of the office of elder. Now this is not unique to elders, is it? Indeed, every Christian should pray this prayer. There is not a fundamental categorical difference between an elder and a church member. They are both together, summoned by Psalm 23:1, to have a healthy dependence on God. To say, He's my shepherd and my caretaker. I am not my own master. And I am not master of this family, this marriage, this congregation. I am depending on God. What is distinct about the elder is the thoroughness of their grasp of that principle. They have matured into a way in which they believe this and live it. They don't just sing it casually when Psalm 23 happens to be in the order of worship. There's a dependence that you can detect in this person's life. This ought to be true of all maturing believers. But it must be true of the maturing man we will elect to be an elder. That there is first and foremost at work inside the heart and mind and life of this man a dependence on God. A real grasp of his own neediness. I am not my own shepherd. Nor am I ultimately your shepherd. To do this job, to preach this sermon, I need someone to shepherd me and his name is Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd. But so too the opposite, I shall not want. And so all that I need to do the job is found in Jesus. This should be both simultaneously a tremendous humbling of every heart. There is no one here who doesn't need to depend on God. And yet, it should also be a tremendous encouragement. There is no one here who cannot depend on God for all that they need. He is able to equip you for the service He is calling you to. If He is calling you to office of elder, He can equip you for that. If He is calling you to husband, wife, mother, father, co-worker, employer, boss, student, whatever that calling is, depend on your God and He will shepherd you and you will not want. This is the first principle. 
We depend on God to fulfill our callings. Now, if we're going to witness a dependence on God in the midst of the congregation to discern who is mature, who is growing up into this sense of neediness, we're going to have to look at the psalm and see the way the metaphor illustrates for us that neediness, that weakness that marks maturity, that dependence that highlights maturity. Notice first, in the metaphor in verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, the waters of rest. David here is imagining his flock of sheep out in the vast verdant pasture where they can nourish their bodies by indulging in the green grass. He is imagining the quiet brook rippling along, soothing the sheep. It is shallow enough that they can wade safely through it. It is deep enough that they can quench their thirst in it. It is a very bucolic and pastoral scene that he sets before us. It is a sweet image meant to put our hearts in a certain emotional place. When we have God taking care of us, the first sign that you are actually trusting him, that you are actually depending on him, is rest. Does that surprise you? Indeed, does it offend your sensibilities as a proper Bostonian? We love to be busy. We love to be hard at work. And yet, Psalm 23.2 says that the very first evidence that we have found a mature believer who's actually depending on God to meet his needs is that that believer rests. Now, I don't mean idleness. And I don't mean inactivity. And I don't mean laziness. You see, if you've ever watched sheep in a pasture near streams of sweet water, they're not still, are they? They're munching. And they're moving. And they're grazing this way, and they're grazing that way, and they're going down to the water and back up to the grass. And in all of this imagery, what David is calling to our minds is the fact that this is a person whose dependence on God has produced that chief form of human rest, which is not a nap. It is worship. There is no higher or more holy expression of rest than worship. To be in the word of God, grazing on the goodness and grace of God. To be moving slowly through the pages. Not to check a box on the morning routine. Not to fulfill one's daily duty. But to actually put into one's soul the goodness and richness of God. Through the word of God. Likewise to be in prayer. And to actually pour one's heart out. And to actually share one's deepest secrets and concerns and sins with a father who knows them. Who loves them. I learned to pray as a child. Through really two means. One was the public prayers of my pastor. Which were always so full of scripture. And so full of warmth and of joy, he prayed like a man who loved God. 
and who loved God's word. The other place I learned to pray was the kitchen table of my grandmother. We would go up for two weeks every summer. The boys would rotate. And there were two older boys and two younger boys and a middle boy. I was the middle boy. So I would go up for two weeks alone. And I loved it. I'm an introvert. And every single morning after breakfast, my grandmother would go to the dining room table and sit down and flip open her Bible. And I, not knowing what else to do, would go sit down at the other side of the table and flip open my Bible. And up the ramp would come my Aunt Beverly, pushing her walker. And she would sit down in the third chair and with her hands shaking from the palsy, she would flip open and turn and crinkle the pages until she found her page. And we would all sit there completely silent for what felt to a young boy like ours as we just stared at our pages. And then they would pray. My Aunt Beverly, when she was a little toddler, had walked, crawled to an electric socket on the wall and stuck her tongue in it. When she prayed, I couldn't understand a word that was coming out of her mouth. But when she prayed, you swore she knew Jesus was listening. There was fervor. There was faithfulness. This is a heart that is grasped. The Lord is my shepherd. She was at peace. This is what it means to be one who is understood. I need God. And I'm going to find Him in the Word, and I'm going to find Him in prayer, and I'm going to rest there. I'm not going to move. Slowly the pages turn. Slowly the prayers come out. And I'm not squeezing in worship. If you ever tell me that you squeeze in family worship, if you squeeze in private worship, I'll gently remind you you're doing it backwards. We worship first and we squeeze in life after. We rest first. This is the sign of maturity. We have found someone who rests, who sits down with the scriptures, who sits down in prayer and dwells there and rests in the presence of God. It was said of one Puritan preacher that when he went into the pulpit, you felt like Moses had come out of Sinai. So long did he linger in the scriptures and in prayer. This is the first sign. The second sign of dependence that we see in believers who mature and grow in godliness is that they move. Not only do they rest in that state of worship, feeding and nourishing their faith on Christ, but they actually move. They then get up and go. In verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This phrase, He restores my soul, speaks to the totality of the new creation. We can think of Paul's language in his epistles. For anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a restoration. There's a renovation. 
that when we are faithful to worship God and to make worship the priority and to rest our souls in worship, there's a kind of healing that comes from that, a kind of renovation that comes from that, that then is expressed in our obedience. He leads me. There is a following of Jesus that happens by resting with Jesus on the Sabbath day, that is being in worship morning, noon, and night, by resting with Jesus throughout the week, that is attending to his glory in worship, we find him then drawing us out of ourselves. We find him leading us out into the world that his calling is on us to go places. Indeed, they are called here the paths of righteousness. I actually like a slightly different version of the Hebrew here. Ruts. We can translate this word, the ruts of righteousness. I like this word because it has that image of the meadows and the pastures in which sheep actually occupy. You see, in David's world, there wouldn't have been any meadows or fields in which sheep were brand new to them. Rather, all the sheep that David were leading out into that meadow had been there before. And so there's this rhythm to life where there are ruts through the fields. And my friends, we are often tempted, especially in our youth, to innovate. And to say, I have found a new patch of field. Let's go graze over there. I have found a new road over the hill. Let's do that one. And David says, no, the one who depends on God is content to walk in the well-worn ruts that go behind the heels of Christ. They're not trying to be particularly innovative. But they are also not strict conservatives or mere traditionalists. They hold to the ancient and historic practices of Jesus. But not simply because they don't like newness. Or because they're scared to leave their own familiar ways. But rather, as the end of the verse says, for his name's sake. The reason they want to walk the ruts of righteousness behind Jesus is because that's where Jesus is. Because they want to maximize his glory. Because they want to magnify his grace in the lives of others. Do you know why I love singing psalms without instruments. Because if it sounds good, it was Jesus. Not me. Do you know why I love preaching word by word, line by line, verse by verse, text by text? Because if it meant something to you, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. There's a richness to the glory of God in following the ancient ruts of righteousness. That when we devote ourselves to walking in the ways of Christ, and being content with the traditions He has handed down to us, that we discover this restorated soul is able to keep close to Christ. And to bring glory to Him in the work that we do. I pick on worship, but my friends, this extends into all your callings. The way you do your work. I was reflecting earlier this week. So often our questions come down to, should I do this or should I do that? When Jesus is really asking you, how will you do it? 
Will you do it with grace and with diligence? Will you keep to the ruts of righteousness for His name's sake? This is the men that we see raised up for the office of elder. They rest in worship. And then they rise to walk in the ruts behind Christ of righteousness for His sake and not their own. But then thirdly, we are shown a sign of the righteousness particularly expressed in sorrow. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even as much as one who depends on God, then rests in the worship of God, and follows God in the ruts of righteousness through life, so much more that mature believer likewise is much comforted in the midst of affliction. I was a little curious to see which Psalm 119 Tom would pick for the start of Sabbath school this morning. You all have noticed that he always picks a Psalm 119, right? Not to ruin, you know, the secret. Because there's that great Psalm 119. Affliction has been good for me. I knew a sweet, aged saint who had served the Lord alongside her pastor husband for decades and decades out in the Midwest. And when she was growing weak, she turned to her pastor and said, when I go, I want you to preach on Psalm 119, affliction has been good for me. He burst into tears and said, I don't want it. And he did it anyway. You see, this is a mature believer who can pray with every fiber of her being. This affliction, it's been good for me. I learned about the rod and the staff. And they comforted me. I passed under the pain of my sorrow's cross. I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a tremendous image. Do you know what sheep are afraid of? Their own shadow. Much less the shadow of death. My friends, you know what Christians are afraid of? Their own shadow. We're so like sheep. Terrified of everything around the corner. Terrified of every shadow and shade of darkness. Especially death. And yet not so the mature believer. Who has learned to depend on God. And has learned that in weakness that trusts God. There is no fear of evil. That affliction is good for me. The rod and the staff though they strike me. They save me. They say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. They say with Christ, into your hands I commit my spirit when he crucifies them. They say with Samuel Rutherford, bring me the cross of Christ and let me kiss it. How I love that sanctifying sorrow. First time I read that, I thought, that man's sick. The second time I read that, I thought, that man's a saint. How they love the rod and the staff. They love the protection from their enemies it gives them. 
and they love the sanctifying sorrows. It works upon them. They walk through the valley of shadow of death, but they do not fear. They are much comforted by their weakness, much comforted by their dependence on God. This is the third sign of a mature believer. Several weeks ago, when my Aunt Beverly was first told that she was unrecoverable, she would die between weeks and months. Her medical proxy, my uncle, was asked about a DNR, do not resuscitate. And she said, oh yes, sign it. And he said, are you sure? And she's like, oh yes, I don't want to delay meeting Jesus. She was not simply walking through the valley of the shadow of death. She was walking into death. And she feared no evil. Because she knew her Savior and she depended on Him. And she needed Him. And she knew that need. And it is that knowing of need that makes us mature believers. That makes us grow up into shepherds of others. The last part of the psalm seems to leave the pasture and to come into the domestic imagery. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Verse 6, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. By beginning the image with table and by ending the image with house, David seems to be switching the experience of the psalmist from that of a sheep under the loving care of a shepherd to that of a human in the loving care of a host or a hospitable one. It seems to fit. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. David is one who knows what it's like to run from Saul, what it's like to run from Philistines. He knows what it's like to seek a warm welcome in a wild and terrifying world. He knows what it's like to want his head to be anointed with oil, to be refreshed. This is their version of a nice hot shower. To be made sweet-smelling. To have the, the dirt and the filth and the grime and the pain and the suffering to be washed away. It's a good hot bath full of bubbles. I want my head anointed with oil. My cup runs over. I want an abundance of good drink to cheer my heart and to bring a smile to my face. Goodness and mercy follow me. I am chased not only by enemies, but by love. And love has chased me right into the house of God, where I'll dwell forever. I submit to you that this final image of David's is not about a human. Although if you go back a, a few years when I preached Psalm 23 to you the first time, my 23rd Lord's Day of the month, I did say that it switched to humans. I've changed my mind. So, I don't know. Do whatever you want with that other recording. I think it's still the sheep. And it is the most extraordinary and unexpected change of events. A sheep who out in the pasture had received so much love and care has been brought home and adopted as a pet. You see, what makes a mature man of God, what makes a mature woman of God, 
is the realization that what matters most about who you are is your adoption as a child of God. To put it in the words of Jesus, when those sheep who had been sent out among wolves to be shepherds of the helpless and harassed flock of Christ, when they returned in Matthew chapter 10 saying, Jesus, it was fantastic. We preached the gospel and people got converted. We cast out demons and the darkness fell. We laid our hands on sick people and they got well. And do you know what Jesus' answer was? That's nice. But don't lose sight of this one fact. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Before you elect an elder, find a man who understands that his identity and self-worth is not in what he gives to the church, but what Christ has given to him. In what Christ has given to the church. Our ministry is not the measure of our godliness or our goodness. This is the point of the metaphor of shepherding. That there is one true shepherd. It's not you and it's not me. We are children of the living God. Adopted out of the wild. Out of the wilderness. To live in a house with God. Like his treasured and choice possession. That we should have on our filthy heads the holy oil of the Holy Spirit. That we should have in our hands the cup, not of wrath and of judgment that we deserve, but of life, abundant life, brimming up and spilling over. So abundant is that life in Christ. And that we who like sheep have all gone astray, another beautiful image in Psalm 119, should find out there in the darkness and in the wild goodness and mercy like hounds of heaven have hunted us down and brought us back to the house of our Father. Dear friends, it's grasping this that makes us mature. That makes sheep ready to shepherd. When we believe this, when we live this, Jesus is your shepherd. Learn to live with him. Live with him by resting in worship. Live with him by walking with him in the ruts of righteousness. Live with him by being comforted in all your sorrows by him and his presence. Live with Him by finding your identity and your value in Him. And not in yourself or your work. Friends, Jesus is your shepherd. Learn to live with Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful day. We thank You for this beautiful Gospel, this good news about Jesus Christ. How He loves us. 
how He has given His life for us. And how He has, as the ascended King, full of glory and power, sent to us these sheep who might learn His power and grace and so shepherd us. Father, bless these sermons to our heart, to our life, that we would disciple one another. And as a congregation, grow up into Christ. And that we might advance, O God, by Your grace and power to an election. Give us elders in whose heart reigns Christ. Give us elders over whose life reigns Christ. And make us a church who worships Jesus, follows Jesus, is comforted by Jesus, and finds in Jesus all our joy. Make us such a church. Grant what you have commanded. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.